G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. Realfaith.org.au I can generally say, okay, yeah, my mate Andrew Chan's a convicted you know, drug smuggler, but to me, that's not who he is, you know what I mean? Like, I, I even took my daughter, um, we visited him in prison, and my wife and my family, like, you know, so for me, he was my family. Uh, he did that, but that wasn't how I saw him, if you know what I mean. Welcome to Real Faith conversations about the impact faith has on our lives and the challenges we go through. Helping us today and giving us hope for tomorrow. That's real people, real life and real faith with Eric Scadabo. In April of 2005, youth pastor Mark Sopa was sitting in his car when he heard the news that nine Australians had been arrested in Bali for attempting to smuggle heroin out of Indonesia. His heart sank when he heard the news that one of the Bali Nine was his childhood friend, Andrew Chan. He and Andrew grew up together, and as kids, they attended Christian camps and had spent holidays together. Sadly, Mark would eventually be asked by Andrew to read his eulogy at his funeral, after Andrew was executed in 2015. Where did it all go so wrong for Andrew, and how did Andrew finally come to faith? We'll discuss all this and more with Pastor Mark Sopa. Mark, welcome to the program. Yeah, thanks, Eric, for having me. Glad to have you with us. Thank you so much for taking some time out of your family holiday to join us. Where are you at this moment? I'm currently in a caravan park in Alice Springs, just on our way to Uluru in a couple of days. So um, I've got about a five-month break So with the family. And where are you normally? Where Where do you uh, live? I'm norm- normally at Menai Salvos in the Southern Shire and lead the church there at Menai Salvos. So, yeah. Okay, well, let's go back to April of 2005, you're sitting in your car and you hear this mm. shocking news. Take us back to that day. Yeah, I'm sitting in the car with my dad and uh, the radio was on and, and they just came on breaking news and they listed out the names and we're like, oh, surely that's not Andrew Chan. And then my phone rang and then my dad's phone rang and there were two different people who knew that we knew Andrew and just said, oh, look, it's all over the TV, it's all over the news. I think Andrew's been arrested and... Um, Literally, as soon as we got that phone call, my dad and myself went straight to Andrew Chan's house, where his parents were, mm-hmm. his brother and his two sisters were, and there was plenty of media um, and news at the front of their house, and so we just sort of made our way through and um, went and sat with the family. That was sort of pretty quick, probably within half an hour or so. so. <laughs> wow. So just... Uh a bolt out of the blue, and uh, we should say that your dad, David Sopa, he's a pastor as well with the Salvation yeah, Army? he's an officer, um, mm-hmm. 35 years, just recently retired as a minister in the Salvos, and so, yeah, he uh, invested a lot of time in Andrew, so I suppose it's a pretty intense pastoral visitation, if you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And not to get too far ahead of ourselves, but your dad eventually ended up officiating at Andrew's wedding. Yeah, at his wedding um, and also funeral. And um, my dad's still got that picture on his desk. He's got a picture of him and Phoebe um, and him doing their wedding ceremony. It was sort of one of his 
highlights, I suppose. So, mm. yeah. And that wedding, unfortunately, sadly, was the day before the execution. Yeah, a couple of days before, yeah, it mm. was. Well, let's go back to when you met Andrew Chan. How did you meet? My parents are Salvation Army officers, mm-hmm. and so they move around a bit. Um, my parents were appointed to the church or the corps at um, Enfield, Salvos, mm-hmm. and so Andrew and his family, the Chan family, lived um, in Bomara Street, and we lived on Bomara about five doors down, and I've got two older brothers, and Andrew was the youngest in his family, had two sisters, two middle sisters, and an older brother, Michael, and so Michael and my older brother was similar age and the family just hit it off we were just mm. at each other's houses all the time and um, that's just how it sort of eventuated really um every friday um andrew's parents owned a chinese restaurant and probably only had a couple of days off a year and so they'd work extremely hard and late hours wow um, so every friday in particular um, all the kids come up and um they'd have uh, australian food hamburgers <laughs> or something and um We'd have Chinese that um, Ken and Helen, um, his parents, would <laughs> bring up for us. So it was a bit of a highlight every Friday night. We'd yeah. be uh, having dinner with each other. So, so they're yeah. immigrants from China, is that right? Yeah. I've been here for a number of years now. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Okay, so that was your childhood. You and Andrew hanging out. What kind of things did you do together? Yeah, all sorts of things. Played football. My dad um, had a soccer team that Michael and Andrew all played um, in. And a bit of a funny story. My dad only had one team, and we had a variety of ages, and Andrew was the youngest by far, and he had his soccer jersey, he'd tuck it in his pants, and it had come down past the bottom of his shorts. <laughs> his shorts. Uh, um, we went on, Not like, quite a like, great fashion statement. Yeah, that's right. Um, I can remember my dad took a basketball team all the way up to Stanford, and um, we played a basketball team, and Andrew was there, Michael was there, and... Um, and my dad took a basketball team from Enfield, just kids in the community, all mm-hmm. these boys, and um, went away camping and, and playing basketball and just all sorts of stuff. He'd come on our family holidays. Um, he was sort of the, the fourth wheel, I was sort of brother, and he would come along. So, yeah. yeah. So yeah. your dad really had a heart for kind of taking Andrew under his wing, so to speak. Is that right? Yeah. My dad loved Andrew, and um, Andrew would call him my parents' dad and mum and my grandparents' far and mar. And, wow. Um, even though after three or four years when we were in, so we moved away, we still kept in contact and he'd come up and have holidays with us um, from time to time. And yeah, it was, it was really good. Yeah, so you, you said you moved away. So you were very close for several years, but then your family relocated? Yeah, so we moved, um, I think we moved to Bathurst. And Andrew still peaked. He visited a, a number of times. And um, my parents had a new role for the Salvos running a lot of... Um, divisional youth camps and things like this so my dad would always make sure andrew would would come along he's been he came to broken hill and he'd been to out west somewhere at some camps and from time to time so so obviously in his childhood andrew was open to christian camps and the things of the lord yeah yeah he um was it in the salvos we call it a junior soldier but sort of like an official sunday school maybe um but so he would have heard the the gospel in a simple fashion i Mm -hmm. suppose and he would have known right from wrong, you know. But obviously, those teenage years, I think he got a little bit wild. Yeah. Um, I don't think he did. And that was sort of, I don't know, the way things went a bit pear-shaped, to be quite honest. Yeah, so you were close to him. What kind of personality did he have? Mate, he was the life of the party. He, he oh, was yeah? funny. He would tell jokes. He was a um, phenomenal networker. Um, when I say not book smart, like I, don't, I think he struggled at school. 
score, but um, I think he was a real hands-on, sort of great with numbers. He was, yeah, he was quite intelligent, could read people. I was one of my best mates, so um, and I've known him for a long time. I suppose to ask the question, you know, why, did, why didn't I, you know, pick up on that? Well, you sort of know there's a, a side that you don't really know, but I think Andrew would say that he was good at wearing masks, you know? Mm. Yeah, so when did you first have an inkling that he was kind of going on a darker path? Um, probably when he was about 15 or so. He came to one of those camps. Every year he'd come to this camp, and I thought he had this pretend tattoo, and um, so I, I pinned him on the ground. I was on four years older than him, and <laughs> I scratched it with a stick, <laughs> and I was trying to wipe it off, and I couldn't. It was, it was this genuine, real tattoo, and you know, I thought, what is going on? What's a 15-year-old doing getting a tattoo? And then I sort of, um, Michael, his older brother, had moved out. He'd left home when he was 18. So sort of Andrew sort of left his own devices with his parents um, running their restaurant. When he was the day-to-day at home, he didn't really have much of a good influence on him at, at, at that stage. So did he start hanging out with a rough crowd at that point? Yeah, he was going to Homebush Boys, a little bit wild. And at that stage, he was probably a little bit of the smaller kid, so he might have got picked on a little bit, but... Hmm. But um, he wasn't going to handle that for too long. And uh, I think then he just sort of started hanging out with the wrong crowd and getting in trouble. And that's where things sort of went through pear shaped. Mm. And he started to work for a food service and he was highly regarded at his job? Yeah, like people that know Andrew, not not what he's done like as a, as a drug smuggler, loved Andrew. Like his neighbour, <laughs> they loved him, you know. Uh, she's a single lady and, and, you know, he'd take care of her. Um, Wow. I can remember when this blew up with the media about he'd been arrested or whatever. Everyone in the street only had good words to say about him, and um, neighbours came to Michael saying they'd knocked on the door trying to get a bad story about him. But anyone, they only had good reports to say. He was very likable, um, mm. and people were sort of drawn to him. Really, he sort of had that little bit of. Uh, he was very cheeky <laughs> and a good sense of humour. Yeah. So it sounds like if you didn't know how things ended up, you would have thought the sky's the limit for this guy. Very charismatic, uh, was good at his job. But uh, I read an interview with him, and he said that uh, he got into the kind of the drugs and taking drugs himself because he wanted the quick money. Yeah. He, um, well, you remember he was arrested at 21, so he's Mm -hmm. very young. (laughs) But um, obviously, myself, like, I didn't pick up that he would use drugs um, as such. Um, But I think very much got more into the dealing side and the taking of drugs, I think. So that sort of wasn't great, that's for sure. So the quick money, obviously, was a temptation that he got involved in. And yeah, that kind yeah. of led him down the path to drug smuggling and, and the quick yeah. money, big money that you can make doing that, at least he thought. Yeah. Well, it's a lot more than he was probably getting at work, that's for sure. Yeah. And so you had no idea about the whole drug smuggling and his drug use. That was completely foreign to what you knew about him? Yeah, well, obviously, you know, like, he's 15 and he's getting um, tattoos and, and those type of things. And, and obviously, Michael, his brother, sort of wasn't too happy with some of the mates he was hanging around. But really, no, mate, we had no idea. He was great at probably wearing two masks, you know, for those that knew him, they loved him. And, and then on the other side, there was sort of this hardened sort of well, a little bit um, criminal there. Our guest today is Pastor Mark Sopa, who's sharing about his childhood friend, Andrew Chan, who was one of the Bali Nine that were arrested in 2005 for attempting to smuggle heroin out of Indonesia. We'll hear more of Mark sharing about Andrew's life when we return 
right here on Real Faith. Looking for resources to grow your faith? Check out Vision Christian Store with books, movies, audio CDs, DVD resources and more. Plus, free delivery on orders over $50. See visionstore.org.au You're listening to Real Faith. Conversations with real people about how God works in their lives. If you want to know more about integrating faith into your life, our website is realfaith.org.au. Just go to the website and you'll find helpful articles about the impact faith can have on your life. Once again, that's realfaith.org.au. Welcome back. I'm Eric Scadabo, and today I'm chatting with Mark Sopa about his childhood friend, Andrew Chan, who was one of the Bali Nine that were arrested in 2005 for attempting to smuggle heroin out of Indonesia. Before the break, Mark shared about how he and Andrew grew up going to Christian camps together. Next, Mark will reflect on how Andrew's life took a turn for the worse in his teenage years and how it took a turn for the better after he went to jail. Now let's back up a little bit to you personally. So you were raised in a Christian family. You're a pastor's kid. Yeah. Were you always a, a good Christian kid? <laughs> Relatively speaking, yes. Um, my parents are Christian um, and their pastors. Um, I had great opportunity to experience God, and my parents are probably why you know I made that decision. And I, my parents worked in youth ministry for a long period of time, so I feel like my dad was very instrumental in my upbringing. He mentored a lot of my mates. All my mates loved my dad. They would come over and want to spend time with my dad. Um, wow. So I was very, very fortunate in regard to that. Um, mm-hmm. That just, you know, my sort of dad knew how much to give people a little bit of, um, you know, leeway or rope, you know, but not too much. He was very sort of good like that. And all throughout my life, he's always invested in young people. Like even when we were at Enfield, we took a bus of city kids up to the bush and go on camp and, and then, and then, all sorts of different things. Like, he just was always investing in young people. That was sort of probably his passion, a little bit of yeah. my dad's legacy, really. So, And I ended up getting into youth ministry anyway, sort of maybe a bit of a flow-on from what my dad sort of did. So, yeah. Okay, so I'm just kind of getting this picture here. You're a strong Christian going into ministry, following your father's footsteps. That's your track. Andrew started off kind of on the same track, you know, going to the Christian camps. But then, as you've been mentioning... His track went way off the deep end, off the rails. Yeah, it's like saying off the rails, but but to the naked eye, to to those around him, like we were still in contact with him. I, I saw Andrew two weeks before he went on this trip, and he told me, oh, "I'm going overseas again." And I I just had recently had my motorbike license, and um, and I had his motorbike. I was riding his motorbike yeah. while he was away, and like probably four weeks to that. He came, my dad had, had organized, he was the minister at um, Earlwood Sowers, which was only probably 20 minutes from Andrew's place, and probably four or five weeks ago, Andrew had caught the train, I think, over, and um, he'd uh, come to the church service. So, so we're still in relatively contact. We're not seeing yeah. each other every day, but, but enough to know, you know, and be around him. Well, I mean, this just sounds kind of bizarre. You have, you know, somebody on the news as being a drug smuggler. Yeah. Who, who was hanging out with this pastor's kid as his good friend. Yeah. It just doesn't yeah. seem like, you know, the two of you, you, you would think a drug smuggler, he's in, a, in the ghetto, he's in a gang, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. But I guess it's a cautionary tale for all of us that uh, you could, you know, get tempted to go off uh, the straight path or the right path, you know, with lots of money and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. The temptation was there, apparently, for him. 
Yeah. My dad said at the funeral, he says, don't judge the man if you don't know the boy. Hmm. And um, it was just sort of like, you don't know how people begin. You don't know what they go through. And um, like, I can generally say, okay, yeah, my mate, Andrew Chan's a convicted you know, drug smuggler. But to me, that's not who he is. You know what I mean? Like, hmm. I, I even took my daughter. Um, we went and visited him in prison. And... My wife and my family, like, you know, so for me, he was my family. Uh, he did that, but that wasn't how I saw him, if you know what I mean. Mm. Now, you had a decision to make. You could have said, hey, you know, I'm a good Christian pastor guy. I don't hang out with drug smugglers. You could have just disowned him as your friend, but you yeah. chose not to do that. Yeah, I was never never an option, really. I don't think that's been embedded in me, but it's not even part of the Christian Faith, really. Yeah. yeah. Um, if anything, it's the opposite. Um, for me and my family, that was, you know, and particularly supporting the Chan family through the whole process as well was probably the most important part mm-hmm. um, for our family while we're here. And and obviously, when we're we're not in contact with them on every daily basis, but you know, when yeah. significant moments were around, we were there to uh, just you know listening here or just checking in on them or um, or dropping in every now and then or going over for Chinese New Year at their place or, you know, significant milestones. So now he's in jail. He's in Bali. Yeah. And he's at his lowest point. Can you kind of tell us what happened at his lowest point there? Yeah, he sort of tells the story a little bit. I mean, uh, he thought no one was coming for him and, you know, he'd been interrogated for four days or something and hadn't seen anyone that he knew. He's in a country where he doesn't speak the language and all sorts of stuff. Originally, he was all bravado and and my brother, Luke, and um, Andrew's brother, Michael, were on their way over and they spent a month over there, uh, the first month of of many. And um, I think Andrew was thinking, oh, he's going to kill himself. He goes, Lord, send me someone that I know that I know I'm not alone, sort of type of thing. Mm -hmm. And um, at that particular moment, he was contemplating doing and what had just happened is my my brother and Michael had just walked in and on the you know, corner of his eye, Andrew caught Luke and just yelled out, Luke, Luke, and, and sort of was standing around. Some guards ran away from them, sort of obviously they're in a building, and just jumped on Luke's leg and was just, you know, sobbing and crying, Luke, help me, help me, save me, save me. Wow. And um, so Andrew, I think that was a bit of, you know, you're not alone, we're, we're here to help you type of thing. And, um, and my mum had given um, my brother Luke a Bible to give Andrew and eventually that was the only thing um, we just said get back to read Matthew, Mark, Luke and John that was the only thing he had for months yeah yeah so at his lowest point uh, Mm. he heard that you know he might be executed and then Mm. according to an interview with him I read he said that hey if they're going to kill me anyway I might as well kill myself and was about to take off his shirt and make it into a noose but then he remembered well, there's the heaven and hell issue, and yeah. and that, and he yeah. decided that he if he killed himself, he wanted to make sure he ended up in heaven. So maybe yeah. maybe those Christian camps uh, that he had gone to had planted a seed that he remembered even at that lowest point in his life. Yeah, I, I genuinely believe that he he knew the right and wrong and he knew heaven and hell. Um, but obviously, when people make a decision when they're young, it's when they're an adult that they've got to make those decisions for themselves. Yeah. And yeah. Um, obviously, when he was an adult, he didn't make those decisions. And so he had to make that decision for himself again. And, and um, thankfully, it did change his life. And 
you know, I've got no shadow of a doubt whatsoever that Andrew is in eternity. Um, mm-hmm. And getting back to your brother showing up, Andrew yeah. had just prayed, God, if you're real, send someone who cares about me to see me. Yeah, yeah. And then also, he never thought his brother Michael would have anything to do with him because they had had a falling out. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah, well, when, when I suppose falling out like his brothers do, but obviously Andrew was probably doing stuff he, he shouldn't be doing and Michael was sort of the big brother. And Michael was really the father figure for Andrew. And so rather than being a brother, he was probably more of a parent. So, yeah. Um, so I suppose he, Michael, the yeah. older brother, could have said, well, hey, you made your bed sleeping at you. I told yeah. you not to do this bad stuff and here you're now in jail. But Michael, his brother, decided to be there for him and help him any way he could. Yeah, Michael, mate, he's, he's got one of those, he's got a, a soft heart, um, but he's a tough cookie, Michael, and um, he would he would be there through thick and thin, and he's, mate, in the story, he's a hero because, mate, his life got turned upside down for over 10 years, and he's done everything. He's been, whatever he could do, he couldn't have done any more. Like, you know, lawyers and talking to the Australian consulate and lawyers and this and that and every, mm. you know, looking like his whole world got turned upside down. So he obviously, he was tough on Andrew because he loves Andrew. Yeah. And then he yeah. showed it through his dedication through the 10 years while Andrew was in jail. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So early on for the first 12 months uh, or first six months, we would only get like, three times a week, 15-minute visitation with him. So it was very, he was very isolated. So obviously yeah. you flew up there to be with him? Yeah, so I've been to Bali more times than I'd like to remember, but at least <laughs> once every year. And so after my brother went for a month with Michael, then I went for a month um, with Michael. Um, and, yeah, we just sort of worked it out from there. But for that, for that period of time, the only thing he had to read really was the Bible. And we didn't have a whole heap of contact with him. Um, but over that period of time, those short little, you know, I can remember going over and it was like two weeks into it and I hadn't even seen him yet. And I got 15 minutes with him and, and just encouraging, you know, you know hold on to that. Um, when you saw him the first time, when you first went to visit him, had he become yeah. a Christian already? I think he was on the journal to reading that stuff, but the conversation was a bit of a blur to be quite honest, but it was pretty quickly. But that was what I said, make sure, you know, you you hold on to, you know, those truths. And, and I can remember just flipping him some paper with some verses of Scripture on them. And that was as basic as it got. If anything, he probably led himself to the Lord. And then, then it was like a honing of his of his faith, you know, uh, and he kept growing in that. Um, obviously, still, I want to say, immature and, and that. But and over a period of time, he's had so many good people invest in his life over that 10 years. So our family, but there's so many other people like... Um, Alan um, Wilkins is a guy um, down in Melbourne. He he mentored him. He's had a lot of good good people, and there was a Christian church service at the um, jail that he's at. And so it makes me proud to be a Christian, to be quite honest. The church capital C, that we have so many good people from all around the world that had come in and Andrew had connected with, and he knew so many people. He knew, oh, you know, this person, this person, people from overseas, and he would never say no to a visit. Well, that was part one of my conversation with Pastor Mark Sopa about his friend since childhood, Andrew Chan. Andrew was one of the Bali Nine who were arrested in 2005 for attempting to smuggle heroin out of Indonesia. We invite you to join us again next time for more of Mark Sopa sharing Andrew Chan's story. You've been listening to Real Faith 
And if you have any questions or comments, you can send us a message through our website, realfaith.org.au. That's realfaith.org.au. Real Faith is a production of Vision Christian Media. This program is a production of Vision Christian Media. To find out more about us, see vision.org.au.